If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Dickens very clearly identifies with with vagrants, uh, with those who are the victims, the casualties of industrial capitalist society. That was Matthew Beaumont talking about how Charles Dickens gained inspiration from walking the nocturnal streets of London. People thought that bathing was unhealthy and that for hundreds of years, really until the middle of the 19th century, the idea of like Putting your body in water was seen as a terrible thing to do. And that was Stephen Johnson, presenter of a new BBC TV series about the history of innovations. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of February 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. What would it have been like to have walked London's streets in centuries gone by? 
That's one of the evocative questions explored in Matthew Beaumont's new book, Nightwalking, which investigates how the nocturnal city influenced some of its most famous inhabitants, including Chaucer, Shakespeare, Dickens and Blake. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, interviewed Matthew recently, and here's what they had to say. Um, So what first inspired you to write this book, I suppose? Well, I have been teaching for many years in the English department at UCL, and over the years I've noticed that many of the writers, the poets and novelists that I most like, that I gravitate towards most, I suppose, have been interested in London at night, working backwards, I suppose, Charles Dickens is the most obvious one, but also Thomas de Quincey, Samuel Johnson and Richard Savage, and going all the way back, in fact, to Shakespeare. And so I had this glimmering sense that a tradition which hadn't ever been excavated before of writers thinking about cities at night was was present and was there waiting to be to be examined in more detail. And that, I suppose, converged with an interest, an independent interest almost, that I had in in walking about London and indeed other cities at night in order to build up a different picture of them from the one that one gets in the day, or at least in the day, one doesn't really have a very coherent picture of what the city's like. One's bombarded so much and one inhabits it so much in terms of routines that make one desensitized to what's going on around one and walking at night I discovered really almost by accident 10-15 years ago I suppose uh, enabled access to to the city as a whole as well as to particular aspects of the city that that get forgotten or or that hide in corners. Mm. It's interesting in the book you say that um, daytime London particularly it's hard to get a sense of it being a natural place whereas at night there's more of a sense of that coming through. That's right. I think there I'm, I'm thinking and I quote, uh, I'm thinking of and I quote uh, Ford Maddox Ford, his wonderful book from the very turn of the 20th century, The Soul of London, where he talks about London at times being able to grasp the fact momentarily that, that London is a place of hills and fields. And I do think that one forgets that in the day that, you know, when one takes the bus, I don't know, up Kilburn High Road, for example, as I often tend to do, uh, one isn't really aware of the topography of Kilburn High Road. One isn't aware of what's going on underneath the tarmac and what layers of history and and geography, natural history, really, uh, lie, lie beneath it. But when one walks at night, when one isn't distracted by nearly so much traffic, when one isn't distracted by nearly so much lighting, by shops, by crowds, by all sorts of things like that that, that we're habituated to in the, in, in the day, one suddenly becomes aware, particularly, in fact, the later it gets and the tireder one gets as a walker, one becomes aware of the specific topography. Hills suddenly become exhausting to climb and one begins to remember that, yes, this this is actually, this, this tarmac, the stone that I'm walking on, encases natural features which stretch back millennia and that's really exciting i think it, it, it's really thrilling and in fact one of the things that i've done relatively regularly as a night walker myself is follow the course of london's underground rivers through the city because it it provides a wonderful sinuous and interesting slightly off kilter way of, of 
tracking through the city and of discovering bits of it that certainly I wasn't familiar with before. Mm. That sense of a huge uh, you know, time span is interesting because the, obviously the careers of the writers we're talking about span centuries. Are there any common themes that you think can be drawn out from their experiences of London at night? I think the feature that's most strikingly common to, to all of them, running all the way back from to, to the Middle Ages, to, to Chaucer, then on to Shakespeare, through the 17th, 18th centuries and in, in the 19th and, and Dickens, is a certain identification with the figure of the vagrant. So by walking at night, writers of one kind or another come across in in their most naked form, not mediated by the kinds of things that that interfere between an ordinary citizens and a, and a vagrant's existence in the day comes across the, the vagrant in 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 their most naked form, sort of stripped back, forced to sleep on the on the street, extremely vulnerable. And writers, certainly from Shakespeare onwards, have I think identified with that figure of the vagrant, someone outside the circuits of the city, its commutes, its capital flows, its commodity flows, its crowds. And they've intuited that the vagrant might have something to tell us from the edges of society, from its margins about about society, about the way society is constituted. Um, as I say, it's, it's, it's apparent even in, in Shakespeare and some of his contemporaries, Contemporaries who, uh, like uh, Middleton, for example, like above all Thomas Decker, as it were, take the figure of King Lear on the heath and relocate him to the city streets at night in order to understand what humanity stripped back to its most basic forms might might look like. But it is also uh, apparent all the way up to, to Dickens and beyond. I mean, Dickens very clearly identifies with with vagrants. Uh, with those who are the victims, the casualties of, of industrial capitalist society. So to what extent did kind of, you know, people walking around at night allow them to see society stripped of its class and gender um, confines? Well, in many ways, the city at night allowed for writers access to gender divisions, to class polarities in their most stripped down, boiled down, concentrated form. Once the crowds had dissipated in the small hours, or as they were sometimes called the, the, dead, the dead hours, the dead time of the night, they became very, very stark, these social differences, I think. This was most of all true in the, in the 18th century when you get the beginnings of nightlife in some recognizable, recognizably modern form because there the, the rich returning from their gaming, their gambling, or from balls in the centre of London, rub up almost cheap by jowl against the vagrants, the poor, the prostitutes who are trying to make their living in the city at night. And in fact, you know, there's a beginning there in the 18th century of a kind of 24-hour culture. So there are wonderful descriptions in, in, in 18th century writing about the night of aristocrats, stumbling back to bed as as the dawn breaks just as laborers are beginning to to enter the streets in order to to find their way to work so there's this really interesting passage this really interesting collision of two completely different class cultures hmm. 
Um, talking a bit more about these kind of divisions, uh, it's interesting the idea of it being more free in terms of, I suppose, sexual identities. Do we get a sense of that across the centuries? Absolutely. Of course, the city at night has been a privileged space for, for male walkers rather than for female walkers. Historically, and it remains the case, I'm afraid, to some extent, shocking though it is, it's residually the case that if you're a woman, particularly a single woman, a solitary woman walking in the city at night, then you are regarded as somehow sexually suspect, as either uh, prey, sexual prey, I suppose, excessively vulnerable or sexually predatory, in other words, probably a, a prostitute. So men have the freedom of the city at night, historically, in a way that women really don't. However, plebeians, to use the old term, uh, working class people, the poor, have, have also had their rights to the city at night, if I can call it that, denied to them historically. So going right back to the Middle Ages and to the Renaissance periods, if you were rich, then you were immune effectively at night. The night watchman was never going to uh, track you down, was never going to harass you, hassle you. You'd probably be traveling by carriage. If you were traveling by foot, you'd be surrounded by a retinue or in the 18th century, you might hire link boys who carried torches to show you your way. The poor, of course, couldn't afford to do that. So they were male or female, immediately suspect, immediately suspicious to the crude, the primitive and often corrupt forms of policing that prevailed at, at night in, in London. Uh, so they were they were often often arrested. And in fact, my book begins effectively, historically, with the introduction in the late 13th century of a so-called Nightwalker statute. Edward I introduced a statute which specifically targeted the poor, the vagrant, the itinerant, men and women, it didn't really distinguish between the two, in order to clear them off the streets once the curfew had been imposed, usually at around nine o'clock at night. But it was a, an attack on the poor and on their freedom of movement at night. It was a, it was a means of prosecuting a kind of class war uh, at night. I mean, talking about the writers specifically that you explore in this book, um, why were they so drawn to their city at night? What did it bring for them? I think they... As I perhaps implied, they they identified with this figure of the vagrant, partly because certainly up until the 19th century, really, writers occupied relatively lowly, often marginal positions themselves in society. So the 18th century, the period in which Grub Street becomes famous, for example, is full of writers, including the young Samuel Johnson, perhaps surprisingly, when, if, if, if one's used to thinking of him as, uh, as this great monumental figure of English literature. Um, it's full of poets, writers, journalists, like the young Johnson, like his extremely disreputable friend, Richard Savage, like Oliver Goldsmith, who led very, very precarious lives themselves, living in the east end of London, or uh, particularly around the place that uh, is now the Barbican, uh, trying to find work hand to mouth, living on almost no money. And they felt a certain freedom, I think, at night. And they identified, as I say, with the vagrant, the marginalized and, and the oppressed in, in society. And inhabiting the city at night, they had access to, to a, a kind of underside, to an alternative understanding of 
the city, one that went against the official story of the city, the official uh, claim that uh, that the city was sort of triumphantly progressive, that it was a centre of commerce, that it was marching into uh, a productive, you know, consumptive future in which uh, everyone was going to be swept up and 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 uh, progress was going to be made. So it's in some way subversive, I suppose. I think it's it it was and to some extent remains an inherently subversive activity walking at night. I mean now of course there are no laws that uh that that prevent you specifically from from walking at night and indeed the night walker statues although they lasted for some time began to fall away I think certainly by the 18th century after the introduction of of public lighting in London and when nightlife begins to arise it just became impossible to police the city at night but all through that time nonetheless um, and after the rise of of, of public writing after the falling into desuetude if you like of of the Nightwalker laws a kind of moral curfew prevailed and one still to some extent I think as I say particularly if if one is a woman walking alone at night uh, it's a vulnerability not just to uh, possibly predatory men, but to the authorities. So I discovered, for example, that in America, in North America still, uh, people can be prosecuted under the under Nightwalker laws, that there have been cases in Florida and elsewhere where vagrant men or women who were carrying large amounts of, of condoms because they might have been a prostitute, might not have been, were specifically prosecuted under ancient English Nightwalker statutes. There's also a sense that some of these writers, it was either a salve or a drug almost, this walking at night activity. Well, I can testify that personally that it is something of a drug, in fact, um, because if one walks for seven, eight hours at night, pounding pavements, which can be very unforgiving, one does become extraordinarily tired and and one does enter an almost hallucinogenic state. And I think that did appeal to those like De Quincey and even like Dickens, who of course wasn't an addict himself, wasn't an addict uh, in, in relation to drugs. He wasn't an, an uh, addict of laudanum as, as De Quincey was. It, it, it somehow fitted this walking at night with a certain dreamlike conception of, of of the city at night. So, you know, Dickens gives an absolutely extraordinary description at one point, mainly in his letters, in fact, although also in one of his articles about a journey that he took, a walk that he did from Tavistock Square in London, where he was living at the time, rather unhappily because his wife his relationship with his wife was breaking down all the way to to Gad's Hill uh, down in Kent, a distance of you know nearly thirty miles, and he walked an incredible pace all through the night, arriving there at breakfast. And there's a wonderful description of him beginning to hallucinate on the road, on the old uh, London to Dover road, and you can see that although he's very disconcerted by the kind of visions that uh, he gets swept up in on the on the road. He, his imagination, a, a poetic imagination, really is 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 fed and shaped by these almost hallucinogenic experiences. Um, are there any writers who you came to see in a new light as a result of this research? I think the one I was most surprised by was, in fact, not a Walker whose stamping ground is London's particularly. Uh, 
and that's William Wordsworth. We're all used to thinking of Wordsworth as the great walking romantic, as the great walker poet. His very meter, his blank verse is arguably determined by the pacing that he did as he composed his poetry. So there's a well-documented account of how intimately walking and writing poetry are for him, particularly, of course, in Cumbria. But what I discovered when I went back and reread Wordsworth, the prelude above all, is that he used to walk at night a good deal on the roads, the footpaths of the Lake District, there encountering, just like some of his uh, comrades, his younger colleagues amongst the poets of the, of the Romantic period, like De Quincey, in the city streets, vagrants, prostitutes, those who'd been left behind by the increasingly progressivist, triumphant march of, of industrial capitalist progress. And so walking at night for him becomes a really quite precious means, both of finding a certain solitariness in which he can come to terms with himself and explore the recesses of, of, his, of his psyche, but also, again, those those people who are the casualties of society and, and, and of the economic system. Mm. Having studied London over the course of these centuries, what innovations do you think most altered its, its shape, its nature, I suppose? Well, I suppose the introduction of public lighting in the later 18th century, slightly after Paris and various other continental cities, did have a very signal effect on the on the nocturnal culture of London. However, that lighting was, of course, concentrated in, in the areas of commerce above all. So there are wonderful descriptions of Oxford Street in the early 18th century, for example, lit up at night in the extraordinary shops with their candles and their displays and the public lighting above them. The culture of promenading begins at that time in this country at night, in, at dusk, certainly. Um, but there are all sorts of areas in the city which didn't benefit from the introduction of public lighting, which remain extremely dark, remain plunged into a kind of Stygian gloom, particularly, of course, the the slums uh, that arise in places like St. Giles. So a place like St. Giles, uh, right next to you know Nash's great Regent Street development, is a place not of illumination, not of enlightenment, not of rational planning, as Regent Street was and, and to an extent still is, but were places of, of chaos, of darkness, of gloom where crime took place. So it tells the other side of the story of the Enlightenment city and the city of, of public lighting, the, the city of illuminations. This is the, this is the dark understudy. If you could somehow travel back in time and visit a city at a particular point or perhaps walk alongside one of these writers, who would you choose or where would you go? That's a very good question. I think it would be London, I'm afraid. Sorry to be so parochial as a, as a Londoner myself. And I think it might be with Oliver Goldsmith in the, in the mid-18th century, who was himself or had been extremely poor um, and uh, wrote all sorts of interesting stuff in various different genres, poetry, plays, novels. There's one absolutely wonderful description in a fictional letter that he wrote from an invented Chinese philosopher 
back home to friend in China in which he describes walking at night. And what's absolutely wonderful about this description of Goldsmith's, which he ventriloquizes through this Chinese philosopher, is his sense that the city at night is 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 what the city would look like after an apocalypse. So we get a sense of a city so desolate that it almost destroys our image of the enlightenment city of the of the progressive city of the day and there's something so evocative about the way in which he evokes its desert like spaces its poor people huddling like you know, rats in in the corners of streets i think he'd be an incredibly vivid companion uh, and i think he had this extraordinary historical imagination which allowed him to think not only in terms of the past and about how deeply rooted London remained in the past, how unable it was to extricate itself from a far less sophisticated past, but also he had a sense of its future and of the potential destructiveness of a future that was obsessed with commerce, was obsessed with development. He had a sense of where it all might lead. And for him, one of the places it might lead was devastation, was a kind of desert space, a ruined city. What new impression of cities or city life would you like readers to leave this book with, perhaps? I think the impression that I'd like readers to be left with is that the city at night is a is a sort of undiscovered country and that it's there to be explored. Now, of course, not everyone can explore it with quite the same confidence or ease as everyone else. I mean, a woman going out alone at night... Um, has to be extremely careful. So I'm not suggesting that people just head out as solitary travellers into the night without thinking about it, nor am I suggesting, of course, that it's a horrific, dangerous place at night, London. But I do think that it's a a different space altogether. And there's, if you like, a different temporality. Time slows down at night, begins to drag, just as space begins to expand in the absence of all those crowds and i think it's an immensely exciting place the physiology of the night if you like is very different to that of the day so time and space expand things slow down and uh, and expand but there's also a certain adrenal excitement about being in the city at night but maybe above all one notices things at night that one doesn't notice in the day one stumbles up against churches for example that in one's everyday life one just doesn't notice one ignores one overlooks and we can suddenly get a grasp i think of of a different kind of history and a different sedimentation of the city's histories by walking around around its streets at night um there's some great characters in the book are there particularly heroes of yours or stories that stand out for you dickens is i think my hero and in fact originally when i first conceived the book it was effectively going to start with dickens and it was going to run up to the present as soon as i started looking at dickens i began to ascertain that he was really at the end of a long tradition of of poets and bohemians who'd walked at night and back beyond that of, of of vagrants and and prostitutes who who had inhabited the city at night but there's something I think incredibly moving about Dickens's relationship to the city at night. He tends to inhabit it. He tends to walk about in it, often indeed at great speed. 
at times of, of particular stress or grief in his life, when his relationship with his wife, his marriage is breaking down, when he's grieving his father's deaths, when he's worried about debt. And he inhabits the streets with enormous sympathy, with just this, this great, warm, empathic understanding of the horror of most people's everyday lives. And he's, he's just great at... Uh, painting a picture of of that of that horror really that that everyday that mundane horror that was matthew beaumont nightwalking a nocturnal history of london is set to be published in the uk and the us next month by verso we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London has raised £5 million to buy four bronze angels originally designed for the tomb of Henry VIII's advisor, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. The angels were sold during the English Civil War, separated and eventually lost. Wolsey fell out of favour with Henry VIII after failing to secure an annulment for the king from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon and his tomb was never completed. Created between 1524 and 1529, the angels each measure around a metre in height. After Wolsey's death, they were required by Henry VIII, who planned to use the tomb for himself. When Henry died, his children failed to complete the memorial. The angels were thought lost until 1994, when two appeared at auction, BBC News explains. Then, in 2008... 
the remaining pair were discovered at Harrowden Hall, a country house in Northamptonshire where all four angels once stood on top of the gateposts. The angels will undergo conservation treatment before going on display at the V&A. Meanwhile, an edition of Magna Carta that could be worth up to £10 million has been found in a council's archives. The version of the historical parchment had lain forgotten in the archives kept in Maidstone, Kent, but belonging to the town of Sandwich. There are only 24 editions of Magna Carta in known existence around the world. Professor Nicholas Vincent from the University of East Anglia, who authenticated the document, told The Telegraph the discovery indicates copies of Magna Carta were more widely distributed than previously thought. He said, quote, If Sandwich had one, the chances are it went out to a lot of other towns, and it is very likely that there are one or two out there somewhere that no one has spotted yet. The discovery was made by archivist Dr Mark Bateson at the end of December, just before the 800th anniversary year of the sealing of Magna Carta by King John. In other news, the contents of a Roman burial casket found by a metal detector enthusiast in a Buckinghamshire field are to go on display for the first time. The items, which include Samian ware from Gaul and an engraved gem, had been buried in a wooden casket with the cremated remains of a member of a high-status Roman family. John Steele discovered the items in Whitchurch in October last year. Oxford Archaeology, which was commissioned to excavate the site, told BBC News the significance of the find became apparent when bronze and iron objects, glassware and high-status Roman pottery all started to be uncovered together. These types of wooden casket burials are particularly rare, with the last one found in Buckinghamshire 15 years ago. The items will go on show at Buckinghamshire County Museum in Aylesbury. Thanks, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place next month. On the 21st and 22nd of March, we're holding two-day events themed around Waterloo and Magna Carta. At each of these events, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. And I should tell you that tickets for both events are selling fast, so if you are keen to attend, I would advise you to get your tickets soon. Stephen Johnson is a best-selling American science and technology writer. He's also the presenter of a new BBC Two series, How We Got to Now, which is due to begin this Saturday. The series, which has already shown on PBS in America, charts the history of a group of innovations which Johnson believes have been particularly important for our development. And it's a subject that is also explored in Stephen's new book of the same title. I caught up with Stephen a few days ago to find out more. You picked out six particular innovations for the book and the series, um, for example, glass, cold, sound. How did you choose those? The one thing that's kind of funny about this is in terms of the BBC, they're only airing five of the episodes because that was the number that they wanted. So they're not doing the glass episode, but the book, of course, still has all six. So the the process for coming up with these topics was, was a really interesting one, really long one. We had kind of a set of, of goals. We wanted, first off, we wanted the topic to be an object that is not conventionally associated with high technology anymore. So there's no episode on the smartphone, for instance, right? We wanted it to be about objects 
in, in the modern world that are so familiar in a way that we take them for granted and we don't even think of them as innovations. And then we wanted to make sure in telling them the kind of 500-year history of where this thing that's now ubiquitous, how it came into being and who brought it into the world, we wanted to make sure that with whatever object we focused on, there were a lot of these kind of crazy unintended consequences. That's a big part of the show is someone invents a tool to solve one problem and it ends up triggering all these strange consequences in seemingly unrelated fields. And then we also wanted to make sure there were interesting people and, and people that were less familiar. Like we didn't want to tell yet another story about Henry Ford and the Model T, right? We wanted to tell, you know, stories that would be fresh and would be surprising to people. And so we looked, we went through a lot of different potential topics for the episodes and eventually settled on these six because they had that right mix of, you know, they were surprising, interesting people, and they didn't feel too technologically advanced. Of all the, the um, innovations you've chosen, which do you think has the most surprising unintended consequence for today? They all have some amazing things. I mean, you know, on the one hand, if you think about the importance of accurate measurements of time. You know, we have atomic clocks now that are accurate, you know, to nanosecond level accuracy, which, which is extraordinary. And if you'd gone back in time to someone in, in the 1500s when they were just trying to get a clock that could be accurate to the, to the level of a second, and you told them, in the future, we're going to have like clocks that are accurate to a, you know, a billionth of a second and beyond, they would have said, well, that's insane. Nobody will need that. <laughs> There's, you can't perceive anywhere close to a billionth of a second. That's completely useless. Why are you wasting your time inventing something like that? That would have no purpose. But of course, we can't have GPS without clocks that are accurate to a billionth of a second. GPS is effectively a clock-making technology as much as it is a kind of a satellite production technology. And so we're able to do all these things navigating through physical space, and we're able to have drones delivering packages because of GPS, which all depends on clock-making. It seems counterintuitive, but that's the way that innovation develops. And that's interesting. I mean, how, how many times have people come up with innovations that had no practical use for them at the time, but then later on turned out to be very useful? Well, it, it happens uh, quite a bit, or, or the, the imagined use is, is wrong. So there, there are two parallel technologies that develop in the 50s and 60s that come together in this interesting way. The first is Corning, the glass company, develops this super transparent glass that the, the initial version of which was so clear that if you had a block of it that was the length of a bus, if you looked through it, it would be as clear as looking through an ordinary window. It was that, it was that transparent. And it just wasn't clear why anybody would need that because you, you don't have windows that are the size of a bus, right? So, you know, it was, a, it was a solution kind of in search of a problem. But then at the same time, researchers in a couple of different places invented the laser and Again, the laser was this interesting technology. You had this highly concentrated light, but it wasn't, you know, people for years have been predicting that there would be lasers and they'd be used as weapons. Like the whole history of science fiction is all about kind of laser beams being used as, you know, some kind of massive death ray. But it wasn't really clear how people were going to use the laser. But and then eventually they figured out that they could combine fibers of this super clear glass with lasers and code information in the light. And that's the invention of fiber optics, which has revolutionized, I mean, the whole internet is basically made out of fiber optics. And we can communicate on a global scale reliably. We're having this conversation thanks to fiber optics. So, you know, there are many cases where someone comes up with something just in a way for the pure kind of 
intrigue and curiosity uh, of it without a clear purpose. And it only takes, you know, someone else comes along and figures out what it's actually useful for. From researching all of these different innovations, what kind of sense do you get of how they come about? Is it, is it more about a lone genius or a collaboration of many different people? It, it's much more about a collaboration than we conventionally assume. Um, the lone genius is, is a great story to tell. People like to hear stories about the lone genius sitting in his garage and inventing something. But it almost never happens that way. It's, it's almost always a collaboration between people either actively working together or people working sometimes in competition with each other solving the puzzle kind of piece by piece. So, for instance, there's a great story about this kind of somewhat tragic figure in the sound episode, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville, the French inventor who basically invented the first device for recording audio 20 years before Edison invented the phonograph. But he, he had this incredible breakthrough and made this amazing device, but he failed, he failed to include this one key feature, which was playback. There was no way to actually listen to the audio you had recorded. And... He just kind of never thought of it, right? It was in a kind of blind spot for him. He, could, he, couldn't, he couldn't imagine a device that would play back audio. And so he got, you know, 70% of the way there, but didn't end up inventing something that was actually useful to people because people like to be able to play back the audio they've recorded. That turns out to be, you know, a very desired feature. It was kind of a dead end for, for Scott, and he never made a dime from it, and he'd been kind of forgotten in, in many ways. But the technology he built ended up, Alexander Graham Bell was tinkering with Scott's invention when he came up with the idea for the telephone. So what turned out to be a dead end for Scott personally as an inventor, once that idea got into circulation and another inventor came along and was able to build on it and turn it into an invention that did successfully change the world. So that collaborative kind of networks are much more likely to be the source of truly transformative ideas than individuals. In each case, you often, as you mentioned, have people like Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. You do get someone who almost takes the glory for these inventions. What, what is it about those people that means that history remembers them so well? Well, I think, you know, Edison, in his case, you know, he was a, kind of a great showman. We spent a lot of time, actually, in the, in the Light episode talking about how Edison kind of finessed the press and w- would sometimes actually mislead the press by talking about you know, how he perfected a long-lasting light bulb when he hadn't at all. But also, you know, both Bell and Edison and, you know, Ford and Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg, the people we celebrate today, they made a ton of money. And I think there is a tendency to lionize the people who had great ideas and became fabulously wealthy. And so one of the things that we tried to do in the show is to remind people that the history of innovation is not entirely populated by those people, that there are a lot of other folks. In the clean episode, we talk about this guy, John Leal, who was the first person to chlorinate drinking water on a kind of a mass scale in the United States, who single-handedly reduced infant and child mortality by 50% thanks to that innovation. Never tried to patent it, never tried to kind of build a company around it, just let the idea spread across the the world. Um, And no one's ever heard of this guy. John Snow, who's a little bit more famous from the U.K., who I wrote about also in my book, The Ghost Map, coming up with the waterborne theory of cholera, which is one of the most important medical ideas of the 19th century. He was just a local doctor. He had no financial stake in solving this mystery. He was just driven by his curiosity and his desire to to basically make people healthier. So that's a huge part of the story, but I think those people get written out because there isn't a kind of entrepreneur strikes gold element to it. And for whatever reason in our culture today, we tend to tend to like to tell those stories. 
you mentioned earlier about the history of cleanliness. I mean, that's obviously a, a fascinating subject. When did people really start making an effort to keep themselves clean? Well, it, it's really funny. We actually get into this a little bit more in the book than, than we did in the show, but there's a credible story about how people thought that bathing was unhealthy and that for hundreds of years, um, really until the middle of the 19th century, the idea of like putting your body in water was seen as a terrible thing to do. And, and the logic seems to be that <laughs> if you kind of clogged up your pores with dirt, that would keep various noxious agents from getting into your system somehow. <laughs> and so, you know, there's all these great kind of kind of self-help things written in the 1700s and early 1800s and people saying like, whatever you do, don't get into a bath. <laughs> it can be deadly. And you can see this, not, it, a lot of people didn't have access, you know, to a nice bath, but even the royalty, there's all these amazing stories about how various kings and, and queens I forgot, it's in the book somewhere. I can't remember who it was, but somebody like didn't didn't bathe until he was six or something like that. Like this is the aristocracy. This is, you know, the king of France or the king of England who could have had a bath drawn for him five times a day if he wanted, but they didn't think it was the way to go. <laughs> Speaking at a moment in the middle of winter where it's unbelievably cold here and it may well be where you are too, how did cold come to be such an important innovation when it seems to be all around us? It's, it's funny because we think about fire as the original innovation and we've been making kind of controlled fires for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years at least, maybe even millions. But we only began making things artificially cold about 150 years ago. And so one of the first things, and this is actually one of the first stories we, we knew we were going to include in the show, is a story about a guy who actually did make a lot of money, this guy, Frederick Tudor, who was a young man in Boston. And he hit upon this idea that if you could ship large blocks of ice to uh, hot parts of the world, to the American South, to the Caribbean, you could take something that was effectively free. You just carve these blocks of ice out of a lake in Boston and take them to a place where it was incredibly scarce. In 1800, if you were living in the Caribbean and you'd been there your whole life, you would have never seen ice. It just was not possible to make it. And of course, it was never below freezing there. So you would have ice would have been the most magical thing you could possibly imagine. And so he, he had this vision and he eventually successfully managed to get these blocks of ice down to the Caribbean. And the funny thing was his, his problem was not actually keeping it from melting, which he figured out how to do. The problem was that once he showed up with this ice, people had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> they were like, we've lived our entire lives without ice. Why do we need this? And he was like, but you can make a mint julep. You know, like he was trying to convince them that this was valuable. And eventually he he kind of got people to come around. He ended up making the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars. And he shipped ice as far away as Bombay and Rio. And it was an amazing story. And what that did was it set off this signal throughout the world that there was money to be made in making things cold. And so people started to think about how you could make things cold through some mechanical means. And a lot of people started working on this problem. There's no kind of single inventor of the refrigerator. Uh, and by the kind of end of the 19th century, refrigeration becomes mainstream. But the big change is when air conditioning takes off, it's one of the great kind of unintended consequences in the show. After 1950, people start to put air conditioning in their homes in the United States. And it almost immediately triggers this massive migration, This really the single biggest migration of people in the history of the United States from the northern states to the southern states in just a short amount of time. 
and to places like Arizona and, uh, and Vegas, where it was impossible to live because it was so hot. And that ends up changing the political map of the United States, because all of a sudden there are all these votes from the South that are more conservative. And the kind of Sunbelt coalition becomes crucial to Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. So on some fundamental level, Reagan, at least the way that he successfully got elected, was completely dependent on the invention of air conditioning, which is not normally the way we talk about American politics. Almost you could say that if you went back right to the beginning of it, that the person who took ice to the Caribbean almost ended the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, there are different ways that it could have played out, right? Reagan could have been elected without air conditioning, but he would have had to have built a different coalition. That's that's the, the kind of factual matter. He would have required a different route to the White House than the route that he took that was made possible by air conditioning. So, you know, it's... It's not that air conditioning was the entire part of the story. It was, it was the only cause. But the, what's important here is that we never talk about this kind of cause when we talk about something like politics, right? We just talk about Ronald Reagan's power as a communicator or his nefarious ways that he, you know, denigrated Jimmy Carter in that election or his political advisors or, you know. But the role of a, a kind of seemingly tangential technology like air conditioning almost never comes up. And that's one of the things that the show is is trying to correct, which is a big point about history, right? That history is not just driven by the great men of history, the leaders, military leaders, kings and queens, but it's also shaped from below in a sense, not in the sense of popular social movements, but from below in the sense of these weird ideas and, and new technologies that get into circulation and end up changing society, oftentimes in ways that are more profound than the way society is changed by you know, the heroic leaders. One other thing you talk about in your book is the idea of the hummingbird effect. Could you please just explain to our listeners what that was and how it connects to innovation? Yeah, it's funny. The phrase the hummingbird effect is not in the show, but it is in the book. It was a little too, I felt like, too theoretical for the show. But what it's describing is everywhere in the show. And basically the idea is the hummingbird effect is, is one of these situations where someone solves a particular problem in a very precise way, comes up with a new idea, and that solution, that new technology, whatever it is, ends up triggering all these unpredictable changes through society, just as air conditioning ends up changing the political map in the United States. When Willis Carrier was inventing air conditioning, he was not at all thinking about American politics. <laughs> he was just trying to keep the room like dry, you know, drier and, and cooler, but it ended up triggering this effect. And I call it the hummingbird effect because if, if you think about it in terms of evolution, millions and millions of years ago, hummingbirds, well, initially the flowering plants and insects, basically mostly bees, developed this kind of interesting relationship where they, you know, could kind of, the flowers could pollinate themselves using these insects and they kind of evolved together in what seemed to be a relationship that was optimized for the interaction between an insect and a plant. And at some point along that process, this bird slowly evolved a whole new set of physical attributes to be able to extract some of the energy from the flowering plants, from the nectar and pollen of the, these plants. And changed their whole anatomy so that they could hover in a way that no other bird can hover. Like the whole kind of wing architecture of a hummingbird is totally different from any other kind of bird. And so in evolution, you have this situation where what seems to be a relationship between these two organisms ends up transforming the design of the, the wing of a completely unrelated organism. And that happens all the way through evolution. And it happens again and again in, in technology as well. And it's a big part of how progress happens. Like, for instance, I'll give you one other example in terms of clocks. Until the middle of the 1850s, every town in the UK, every town in the United States was on its own time zone. 
So every town basically would set a local reading of the sun uh, at noon. And, you know, whenever the sun was highest in the sky, they would say that's noon. And that meant that as you moved east to west across the country, each town was a little bit off from the town next to it. It was like three minutes ahead, five minutes behind, depending on its location. And this was a problem that nobody noticed as a problem until, I mean, who cared? You didn't you'd ride in your horse to some other town. It would take you 45 minutes to get there, an hour to get there. It didn't really matter if you know, they were two minutes ahead or three minutes behind. What changed all that was another technology, which was the railroad. The railroad emerges, and suddenly people are traveling at high speeds between towns on very choreographed schedules. And it became incredibly complicated to figure out when your train was arriving, what time it was when you got there, what time the train that you were connecting to was going to be arriving, because it was on a completely different time zone. And so it required the invention of a new set of standards, like Greenwich Mean Time and the time zones that we have in the United States. And that then made possible in the 20th century mass broadcast media, radio and television, because you couldn't say you know, tune in tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time unless you agreed on what time 8 p.m. Eastern Standard was. So you see these chains of technology, starting with a, a basic kind of clock, then the introduction of the railroad, then an agreement on how to describe time across geographic spaces, which then enables new kinds of broadcast media. And they seem to be belonging to completely different fields, but in fact, they're bound up in each other in, in these very direct ways. Just one final question. Coming now to the present, what do you see as the biggest innovation taking place at the moment? There are a bunch. I think there was a pretty interesting moment a few years ago when IBM had developed this, you know, kind of intelligent, the closest thing to AI probably that we have right now, their Watson supercomputer. And they trained it to play the American uh, game show Jeopardy which is a very complicated game. You have to have an amazing kind of knowledge of the world and an understanding of kind of language to be able to play this game. And, you know, it successfully won Jeopardy against the world champion in Jeopardy. And that was a really interesting, it was funny because he was just playing a game show. That This computer was just competing in a game show, but it was a breakthrough moment. And what I think is so interesting about how they, they did it is one of the things that they fed to Watson to teach it about the world so that it could win a Jeopardy was... They had Watson read the entirety of Wikipedia. And I think there's something <laughs> extraordinary about this. Here you have, you know, for years we've been hearing about the idea of kind of the global brain that will somehow emerge. And yet, in a way, the, the most advanced form of artificial intelligence to date got intelligent by reading the, the words of a kind of globally authored, collectively authored encyclopedia. So all of us, you know, or hundreds of thousands of us or millions of us have contributed to this collective project of building this global encyclopedia. And then we fed it all into a computer. And somehow that computer, by tapping the group intelligence of, of all these human beings, is now smart enough to win a Jeopardy and, and actually should be able to do some generally useful things with that intelligence. So that was, that was a pretty interesting milestone. That was Stephen Johnson. How We Got To Now is due to begin this Saturday on BBC Two at 7.35pm. And the accompanying book with the same title is available now in the UK, published by Particular Books, and in the US it's published by Riverhead Books. And if that hasn't yet satiated your appetite for history, then don't forget our February issue is now on sale. In this month's edition we explore the history and global legacy of Magna Carta as it approaches its 800th anniversary. We discover how Britain became entangled in the Vietnam War. 
and we explore the hidden stories of British soldiers captured by Germany in the First World War. You can pick up our February issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And just before we go, here are a couple of messages that have been sent in recently to podcast at historyextra.com. First up, here is James Anderson. James writes, I'm an American living and working in Shanghai, and I've discovered the podcast and listen regularly. I thought you'd like to know. Thank you for your great programme. Well, thanks to you, James, for those kind words. And we were also contacted recently by Lindsay, who says, I'm an American who jumps around living overseas due to my career. I just finished a two-year tour serving in Niger in West Africa. During my time in Niger, I discovered your podcast and its back catalogue. Despite my unreliable and slow internet connection, I downloaded and listened to every episode, usually while commuting to work along the banks of the Niger River. The podcast topics focusing on European history were a sharp contrast to my day-to-day life of heat, goats, sheep, camels and general underdevelopment, all coated in thick layers of orange Saharan dust. I particularly look forward to episodes which focus on women in history, from medieval queens to suffragettes. And it will be great to periodically hear more about West Africa. I enjoyed the episode last year featuring Ghana's Gold Coast. And since my next two-year tour is in Bucharest, I'll put in a pitch now for Romanian history too. Thanks for that, Lindsay, perhaps one of our most globe-trotting listeners. And if you'd like to listen to the episode that Lindsay is referring to about Africa... That was broadcast on the 17th of April last year, and like all our other episodes, it's still available for download. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be broadcasting one of the lectures from last year's History Weekend Festival. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.